All right, K49, here is our podcast on cardiorespiratory adaptations to training. Again, when we've gone through many of the different aspects of cardiac function, of respiratory function, but all of our talks so far have been primarily focused on what happens with the acute intervention of exercise. And at this point, we need to talk about what happens long term with chronic uh, adaptations to training. And in most cases with chronic adaptation, we're talking at least two to three weeks. Oftentimes it can be longer than that before you see those sort of adaptations. In general, when it comes to training, there are some general principles to keep in mind. Certainly one of them is the overload principle where all the physiological systems in your body primarily exist in a state of equilibrium. Uh, If something's done to disturb the system, they'll adjust and adapt to get back into balance or into equilibrium. So if you ever want adaptation to occur, you've got to overload the system in some form or fashion. Uh, You know, I always give the example, a simple way to think about it is like when you go out in the sun uh, and you end up having melanin come through and it causes your skin to tan or even burn. That certainly is one adaptation where a stress is applied in the source of ultraviolet radiation and an adaptation occurs or or the the stimulus overloads the system the adaptation occurs same thing happens with exercise now how do you uh, control overload normally in training we manipulate different variables Uh, for example things like the frequency of training the intensity Uh, The mode is the type of training we do. Think about running, cycling, swimming, rowing, weightlifting. All those are going to give a a different stimulus to the body to adapt to. Certainly the duration of of the stimulus is key. And then a couple that people often often forget about uh, are density, uh, which is how you space uh, the stimuli apart. Do you get a bunch of stimuli all at once and then a big break and then a bunch of stimuli all at once? Or do you spread it out? Uh, that certainly affects the overload. And then recovery. We often think about uh, what the stimulus is, but we don't think about the recovery from that stimulus, which certainly affects the adaptation. So that's the overload principle. There also is a specificity principle, and that applies to things like the energy system you use, the muscle groups you're using, or the mode of exercise. Again, remember that um, the body is going to react specifically to specific stimuli as you um, stress the body. Individual differences principle is another one to consider, and generally there's a wide variation in the response to um, a training overload. And it can depend on a number of things. Certainly genetics is a big one. Uh, But it certainly also depends on things like where are you starting? Are you starting from scratch? Are you starting partway through the process of, of being fit? A number of things like that. Last thing is a reversibility principle, meaning that the effects of exercise are transient and reversible. This is the use it or lose it phenomenon. If there's a period of time where you don't uh, um, exercise and stimulate the system, there is going to be a, a reversal of, the, of that training benefit. All right, let's get into specific systems. And we're going to start first with... Uh, vascular and muscle metabolic adaptations with training. And these are things that happen inside the muscle itself, either structurally, 
in terms of skeletal muscle components or organelles or blood vessels, or it's going to have to do with enzymatic functions related to energy systems. So for example, uh, making more mitochondria, making more myoglobin, uh, making more capillaries, those are things that are actual structural changes that happen as a result of chronic training. You also can have enzymatic changes. For example, your mitochondria can upregulate certain enzymes like uh, SDH, which is succinate dehydrogenase, or CS, which is citrate synthase. These are enzymes in the Krebs cycle, so you would find them in the mitochondria, and uh, they will upregulate as a result of chronic training. You're also going to increase your ability to mobilize fat as a fuel. You're going to store more glycogen in your muscle. All those things are adaptations that occur with chronic training. And most of those affect what we call oxygen extraction, or it increases the AVO2 difference. Certainly there are other adaptations which are going to affect things like stroke volume or muscular strength or things like that. But most of these muscle metabolic adaptations that happen are going to affect oxygen extraction at the periphery and AVO2 difference. All right, let's talk about cardiac adaptations with training. Uh, when it comes to heart size, you are going to see an increase in both uh, the mass of the heart and you're also going to see an increase in the volume of the heart. In particular, you're going to see those increases occur in the ventricles, in particular in the left ventricle. The left ventricle is essentially the workhorse of the heart. It's going to pump the blood out of the aorta to the rest of the body. So it is by far the most important of the four chambers. Uh, in terms of an increase or an adaptation that causes the muscular wall of the left ventricle to get thicker and stronger, or the volume of the left ventricle to get bigger, one of those is going to have a far larger influence on cardiac function and performance, and that is the increase in left ventricular volume, particularly in diastolic volume. How much does the heart expand and fill during diastole? The bigger that is, the better functioning heart you have, and it has a greater effect on exercise performance. That confuses a lot of people. We usually think of the heart as a muscle, and the stronger it contracts, the better it is. And we would rather see the heart fill more with blood in between beats than have a stronger heart to be able to contract and push more out with each beat. Okay, so what are those adaptations going to do to stroke volume? So with chronic training, you're going to see an increase in stroke volume during both rest and exercise with training. Stroke volume is going to increase. Heart rate is going to be reduced at rest, reduced at any submaximal workload, and it's also going to be reduced during recovery. At least during rest and submaximal workloads, the reason why heart rate is reduced is because stroke volume is increased and cardiac output largely remains the same with chronic training. Remember, cardiac output is dependent on oxygen demand in the periphery. And if we're at rest, or if we're at a constant submaximal workload, our uh, requirement is, oxygen requirement is gonna be the same, whether we're pre-trained or, or post-trained. So if cardiac output's the same and stroke volume goes up, heart rate in response is going to go down. Now, uh, what about maximal heart rate? This is a little different. It usually is the same 
or slightly reduced after chronic training. Uh, now, why this is important is that um, the oftentimes in your role as a clinician, as a coach, as an exercise scientist, you're going to use heart rate to judge either fit someone's fitness or progress of training. And if you're tracking heart rate over time, keep in mind that you're going to see it change, but heart rate response to exercise shows a lot of var variability between individuals and then also within an individual based on hydration, based on heat, based on what their training status is or the density of workouts if they did a hard workout uh, very recently. What about blood pressure? Uh, blood pressure after chronic training is going to decrease particularly in hypertensive and borderline hypertensive individuals after chronic training. Uh, in untrained, uh, I'm sorry, in uh, uh, normal blood pressure individuals, you don't really see too much of a change. Uh, you can, particularly during exercise, again, resting, it'll decrease in hypertensive and borderline hypertensives. In normal blood pressure people, you won't see a change, but during exercise with chronic training, uh, at VO2 max, you'll usually see systolic blood pressure will go up a little bit. Diastolic blood pressure will go down a little bit from the pre-training values. All right, what about AVO2 difference? With chronic training, AVO2 difference is expanded. And that's because mixed venous oxygen content is lower. You're better able through those adaptations in the muscle, more mitochondria, more capillaries, more enzymes, more myoglobin, you're better able to extract oxygen at the muscular tissue level. As a result, mixed venous oxygen content goes down, AVO2 difference expands, and that helps improve VO2 max. All right, let's shift over to blood volume changes with training. So with chronic training, the total amount of blood in your body is going to increase. Total body blood volume goes up. It results primarily from increases in plasma volume. Now, why does your plasma volume go up with chronic training? Uh, there's a substance called antidiuretic hormone, which increases after training, causes you to retain water. Uh, there's also an increase in plasma proteins that get made with chronic training. And due to osmosis, that will cause uh, plasma to increase. There is an increase in the number of red blood cells you have with chronic training, but it is very, very small. The vast bulk of the increase in blood volume with training has to do with the fact you've made more plasma volume. So as a result, even though the total number of red blood cells in the body goes up slightly, your measures of hemoglobin and hematocrit with chronic training will actually go down. That's because you've added more plasma volume and it's kind of like you've watered your blood down a little bit. And so if we measure hemoglobin and hematocrit because they're concentrations, because it's dependent on how much plasma volume you have, those values actually go down, but it's not like with chronic training you have less blood cells. You actually have slightly more. It's just that the increase in plasma volume is substantially larger as a result. And there's a special name for that. It's called pseudoanemia, or sometimes called runner's anemia. Totally normal, totally nothing to be worried about. All right, let's talk about respiratory adaptations with training. Uh, one key pet peeve of mine, if I ask you, does total lung capacity, 
does total lung volume change with chronic exercise training? The answer is no. Your lungs do not get bigger with training. <laughs> they stay the same. There may be some exception with swimmers and the fact that they swam throughout their life and it caused their lungs to be bigger as they grew up. We won't get into that. If I just take a normal person off the street, I measure their lung volume, I train them for 12 weeks, I measure lung volume again, it is going to be exactly the same. It does not change. All right. Now, what happens to ventilation after training? This is the one that, of all these increase, decrease, stay the same. A lot of them are intuitive and you can figure it out. Ventilation's a little different. So at rest, ventilation is usually unchanged. It's usually the same. During submaximal exercise, your ventilation is almost always going to be reduced during that submaximal exercise after training compared to before. That's one of the ways we know you're more fit is if I were to put you on the treadmill and have you run 10 minutes a mile, measure your breathing, you know, you're huffing and puffing a little bit if you're not in shape. Then I get you in shape. We run you 10 minutes a mile. No problem. You can have a conversation. Breathing's not that big. Life is, life is great. So with chronic training, it goes down. Uh, during maximal exercise, what happens to ventilation? It actually increases with chronic training. And this is due to both an increase in tidal volume and frequency of breathing. So at rest, ventilation after training, chronic training is usually unchanged, stays the same. During submaximal exercise, it's usually slightly reduced. During maximal exercise, it's usually substantially increased. All right, let's talk about next some global changes with training that affect performance. And in this case, I'm talking about aerobic or endurance type activity performance. And it's not that we're ignoring strength. We did talk about muscular adaptations early in the semester uh, with mTOR and things like that. But the type of clients that you're going to work with, and, and if you think about, especially those of you going into physical therapy and you talk about quality of life, Mainly, we're talking about being able to do aerobic activities. So let's talk just a little bit about that. What happens uh, with chronic training is you will see an increase typically in VO2 max. Now, the typical improvement from a normal untrained individual who's healthy to train is going to see an increase in VO2 max on the order of maybe about 20%, give or take a little bit. And ultimately, that's going to be genetically limited. Some people have a bigger range. Some people have a smaller range. Uh, how high it can go is going to depend partly on the training, but partly on what your genetically given potential range of improvement is. Another way you can improve aerobic performance is to increase your lactate threshold. In most untrained people, it's about 60% of VO2 max. It can go as high as 90% of VO2 max after training. Uh, you also can improve your economy or your efficiency, depending on what type of physical activity you're doing. And those are really hard to measure and quantify, but those things would uh, improve your performance. Now, some of the things that affect your individual response to aerobic training, remember we talked about this individual differences principle. And there are some people who you probably know who exercise or diet or things like that and they get in shape very very quickly or they lose weight very quickly other people it takes them forever 
there's an individual response to that. And certainly one of the things that is going to depend on that, one, when it comes to exercise training, is what's your level of conditioning or your VO2 max before you start? In other words, the more fit you are when you start a training program, the smaller the improvements you're going to be. If you've been a couch potato, you might have huge improvements just because you're starting from zero. So that's one. But the big thing that's going to influence it is going to be genetics. And the way that we usually try to quantify some genetic influences on an adaptation, like chronic training, is to look at either twin pairs or siblings. And when you do that in general, heredity or genetics counts for somewhere between 25 to 50% of the variance in VO2 max. Uh, now, again, there are responders and non-responders to training, and that's going to affect things. But on the whole, genetics is going to be a big driver of this. All right, that's a relatively short one. This was a pretty short module, cardiorespiratory adaptations with training. Hopefully this uh, helps you for uh, the exam, and we'll keep rolling on to some different podcasts that are going to be uh, loaded on the site.